Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We are starting a brand new series today. We've been walking through the book of John since October of 2021. And so we are kicking off a brand new series that we will not be in for that long, but will take us through the end of June. And I know some of you will be vacationing here in a few weeks. So the beauty is, is you can watch us online. You can listen to this uh, on our podcast or on our website or various outlets that we have, uh, whether that be YouTube, Facebook, whatever. And so even though you may be gone for some of these weeks, you still have an opportunity to not miss what we are going to talk about over the next eight weeks, and I say eight weeks including this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled Weapons of War. Now, probably when I was in seminary, they would not say that Weapons of War would be a good title for Mother's Day, okay? I get that. But nevertheless, if there's ever a series to kick off on a day, I think we could draw some some, uh, correlations and say, actually, this is a very significant thing to talk about. Because those of you who are mothers say, man, you don't have to remind me every day that I'm in a battle. Like, I'm fully cognizant of that reality. And and so today what we're going to talk about moms will definitely help you and throughout the next seven weeks. But whether you're a mother, regardless of whether you're a teenager, um, a child, an adult, whatever you may be, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in a spiritual battle. And so what we're going to talk about over these next eight weeks is how do we stand firm in the battles that we face? In fact, I want you to think about this right now. If you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. Uh, If you're taking notes on your phone, put it in your phone or your device or whatever it is. But I want you to think about the battle that you're facing right now. Here's why I didn't say if you're facing a battle. Because we all are facing a battle of some sort, whether that be uncertainty, whether that be in a relationship, whether that be at work, whether that be um, family, whatever it may be. I want you to think about that right now. Because what we're going to look over at over the next eight weeks is how do you stand firm in that battle? How do you stand firm? And understanding that Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, has given us the weaponry to experience victory in those battles that we face. You know, before we read verses 10 through 13, that's where we're going to be this morning. Our series will cover all the way through verse 20, but today, verses 10 through 13, I think it's important that we give some background information to this book of Ephesians. After all, we're jumping into chapter 6, and I think some of this background information that I'm going to give you will help us understand more the significance of why Paul writes this letter to this church at Ephesus. First thing you need to understand, there's some pictures of what modern day Ephesus looks like as well as what, um, based on the ruins, what it could have looked like, but... Ephesus was the largest city in the richest area in the Roman Empire. So it was an extremely wealthy city. And it was one of the largest cities next to Rome and Alexandria. It was the largest city. People think approximately 250,000 people lived in the city of Ephesus. So back then, that was a very, very large city. It was a port city. 
In other words, it was a place of trade. People would travel um, along the Mediterranean and they would, they would port in the city of Ephesus. And so it was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a very multi-ethnic city. Why? Because it was a port city. Here's something else you need to understand. It was a very, because it was diverse and cosmopolitan, it also was a very tolerant city in terms of religion. So it's estimated that at Ephesus they worshipped over 50 gods and goddesses in Ephesus. In fact, if you lived in Ephesus and you were a citizen of this city, you most likely worshipped more than one god. And so it was very tolerant when it comes to religion. In other words, hey, if you worship a god and I worship a god and they're different gods, that's okay. Or, or let me know about your god because maybe I want to worship him. So it was a very tolerant city. In terms of worship, it was also a city that worshiped the occult, demonic activity. There was many temples in the city of Ephesus, uh, and so there was much demonic activity. They would actually worship the occult, whether that be rituals, whether that be incantations, whether that be invocations, seances, different things like that. Uh, they would, most everyone in the city of Ephesus in every home was a book that actually practiced the occult and magic and different things like that. And when I say magic, I don't mean card tricks. I mean actually occult worship. So that's the city of Ephesus. And Paul starts this church in Acts chapter 19. We actually have the recording of Paul starting this church in Ephesus. So what I've done in my Bible at the beginning of Exodus, or, or Exodus, Ephes Ephesians, sorry, uh, a lot of E's. Um, I put at the top of my, where, where it starts in Ephesians, I put Acts chapter 19, just so I know where it's recorded in the book of Acts, because the Acts records the starting of the church, where we find Ephesus actually being started. And so Paul is, is influential in starting this church. In fact, in Acts 19, verses 17 through 20, you have many individuals putting their faith in Christ, and what do they do? They actually bring those, those occult books, those magic books, and they bring them, and they have a big bonfire, and they burn all of these books. And it actually says in verse 20 that the amount that these books cost that they burnt was over 50,000 pieces of silver. So all that to say that when we come to Ephesians chapter 6, as we're going to read today, and Paul emphasizes spiritual warfare, that would have resonated with these people. You wouldn't have convinced them that it was, oh, that's just kind of fake, that's on the movies, so to speak. No, 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 they practiced it. They understood that. Now, Paul actually writes this letter to Ephesus five years after he was a part of starting this church. And he writes it while he's in prison. If you're following along in the book of Acts, that's Acts 20, Acts 21. Paul writes this church while he's imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. And so being in prison in Rome and being exposed to Roman soldiers in that prison, that's most likely why he uses uh, the analogies of what the Roman guard is wearing, what a Roman soldier would be wearing, to talk about the things that we have been equipped with through Jesus Christ as the things that we fight our spiritual battle with. But here's something else you need to understand about why Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book in the way that he does. Because remember, you're dealing with a very wealthy city, which means you have wealthy citizens, which means you have people in the church that have come from wealth. 
He's writing to a church that has a, or writing to a church that is in a city that, that experiences religious tolerance. To where to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life would have been taboo, to put it lightly. So if he's writing to a city that has religious tolerance, then he's writing to a group of people that have been saved out of that who are believing that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. But let's, let's just be honest. These are first-generation converts. Like, they don't have a grandpa or a grandma who took them to church. So they still got friends who are trying to be like, really, you believe that? Really, uh, you're not striving for just what amount of money you can accumulate, but you're actually serving something else? Really? In fact, they're dealing with many of the same things that we deal with in the Western church. Let's just be honest. Religious tolerance, wealth. Just, at best, I'm okay with the status quo. I get a little bit of the world. I get a little bit of Jesus. As long as I can walk into the church and feel better about myself and walk out, man, I'm good. Like, they're dealing with a lot of the same things. And so Paul writes this letter in this way. Chapters one through three, he deals with the significance of the gospel and what they have been given in Jesus Christ. So he talks about the gospel and its implications in their life. But then in chapters four, five, and six, he deals with the practicalities of the difference that that gospel should make in their life, in their personal life. In relationship to one another in relationship to their marriages if they have them, in relationship to how they parent their kids if they have them. So Paul is being very practical in this book of Ephesians because he wants to answer this question. How does Jesus make a difference in my everyday normative life? Okay, this is the gospel, and this is what I have in Jesus Christ, chapters one through three. But how does that relate to anything that I'm living in my everyday life? Well, Paul deals with that. Why? Because he's dealing with a church that has everything being thrown at them as far as tolerance, as far as wealth, as far as everything vying for their attention. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's why we say at Salem Chapel, here's the fundamental question that we believe God is called us to help every one of us answer. How does Jesus make a difference in your everyday life? Could you answer that if someone asked you? Like you go to church and you say you read your Bible and you say you pray, and, but how does that actually make a difference in your everyday life? See, if we're not answering that question, then man, what are we doing? That is a dis fundamental discipleship question. And we don't word it like that at Salem Chapel because we were like, hey, guess what? We've got an angle that nobody else is doing in any church in Winston-Salem or the rest of the world. No, no, no. That's, that's a question that Jesus answered. That's a question that Paul's answering. That's a question that we're all called to answer. But what I love about this series is we are going to answer that question because Paul answers that question for the church of Ephesus and the Holy Spirit wants to answer that question for all of us. Because at the end of the day, whatever you mention that you're struggling with, you are asking that question. How does Jesus make a difference in the anxiety that I'm feeling in regards to work tomorrow? How does Jesus make it, how is Jesus making a difference in this strife and angst that I have with my spouse right now? 
See, that's why I say when we say how to stand firm in your battle, just another way to answer, ask that question is how is Jesus going to make a difference in your everyday life? So let's jump to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Paul says this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, finally, he's concluding his letter by mentioning this. You know why? He's like, hey, we've been given our identity in Jesus Christ. We've been saved from spiritual death to spiritual life. These are all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. This is how it, the implications of it in your personal walk with the Lord, in your marriage, in your family, with who you work for, with who works for you. I mean, we're gonna deal with all these practicalities, but at the end of the day, here's what you need to understand. You've got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You are in a spiritual battle is Paul's point. So verse 11, so put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What are you battling today? Let's take it to the Lord right now. Lord, we're here today. We have struggles. We are battling something today. So Lord, may we remind ourselves that we have victory in Jesus Christ. That Lord, it is how we apply that victory to our everyday life that is the key to experiencing victory, to be able to stand. So God, today and over these next eight weeks, Lord, may we experience victory in our lives in a profound way, maybe in a way that we never have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's, if you're taking notes, here's the title, How to Fight Your Battles. If we wanted to, we literally could put that as the umbrella over the next seven weeks of what we're gonna deal with in verses 10 through 20, but how to fight your battles. Here's what I want you to understand, this idea. Remember one thing, remember this. You fight your battles. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you fight your battles from victory rather than for victory. That's what I mean by that. As a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's believed that Jesus Christ lived for me, died for me, rose again for me, it's not the good that I can do that gives me a relationship with God, but the perfection that Christ accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. If that's you this morning, then I fight my battles from a place of victory. Jesus has already won. My destiny is secure. I'm gonna be with him forever. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me that will never be taken away. I've been given everything to live a life for Jesus Christ. So I fight because I still live in a broken world. I still battle my flesh. I still battle my sinful nature. But I fight that battle from a place of victory rather than saying, no, 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 I gotta do this and I gotta do that and I gotta do these things to claim victory in my life. That's not the reality. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ. So what we're gonna cover in this series is how to help you fight 
from a place of what you've already been given rather than thinking I need something else to experience victory in your life. John 16, Jesus says it like this. In this world, you will have trouble. So we're not gonna sugarcoat it this morning. In fact, some of us would say, man, I experienced more trouble after putting my faith in Jesus Christ than I had before I put my faith in Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, the temptation's greater. All of a sudden, the struggle is greater. So some of you might say that, but Jesus says this. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I've accomplished it. I've won. You have victory in me. So that's why I say if we're going to fight, we need to fight from a place of victory rather than for victory in our life. So based on that reality, here's what I want to do in this text. The time that we have left from verses 10 through verse 13, I want to give you three ways that you fight from a position of victory. From a position of victory. Look at verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's the first way. Number one, acquire your strength daily. If you're taking notes, underline daily. Daily in the right person. Some of you came in this morning, man, and you, you, mean, you think you got it all together. You think you're strong. You think, you, you know, you're, you're, you're very confident in who you are as a person. In fact, that word be strong there in verse 10 literally has this idea. To clothe oneself with strength just like you put on a garment. So I'm looking across the audience. Everybody got dressed that's in here, which is a good thing, right? Y'all got dressed. So you put on your clothes this morning. That's the idea of be strong. It's something that you put on. So I need to put on strength. And in fact, it's written in a tense that has the idea of to keep on doing this. Just like tomorrow, you're going to get dressed. And the next day, if God gives it to you, it's the same idea. We need to constantly remind ourselves that we have to put on strength, but not strength in you. We'll talk about that here more in a second. And then it says this, in the strength, or some of your translations might say power, in the strength or power of his might. So what's the difference between be strong and strength or power at the end of verse 10? Because that word strength or power has the idea of what is manifested through you. So I put on strength, and by putting on strength, then I experience strength. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, Johnny, I do that every day. I look in the mirror and I'm like, you are awesome. <laughs> you may be more subtle than that. But you're like, man, I'm pretty confident in my abilities. So can we just say what it doesn't say? I know that seems obvious this morning, but can we just emphasize that? It does not say, be strong in your personality. Well, Johnny, I've taken DISC, and I've taken Myers-Briggs, and I've taken five voices, and I've go on and on and on. It does not say be strong in your Enneagram type. Like if you're under 30, you definitely know what I'm talking about. Well, I'm a one. Well, I'm an eight. Got any eights in the room? No, you're an eight? Raise your hand, because you're proud to raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know why I say that? Because I'm an eight. 
Doesn't say that. Doesn't say be strong in your job title, be strong in your marriage status. Well, I'm married this morning, so somebody loves me. Or I'm not married this morning, so unfortunately, no, you're like, no one loves me. No, it doesn't say be strong in your marriage status. doesn't say be strong in your family dynamic, your upbringing, your bank account, your gender, your race, your political leanings, your accomplishments. It says be strong in the Lord. In fact, if you were to look at the original language, which is the Greek that this is written in, the emphasis is not on the phrase, be strong. It's actually emphasized in the phrase, in the Lord. The emphasis is not on power or strength at the end of that verse. It's in his might. See, you know what you're going to need, first of all, to fight from a place our position of victory rather than for victory, you know what you're gonna need? First of all, you're gonna need self-awareness. And the self-awareness is this, that you are not strong enough in yourself. Say this phrase with me, I'm gonna say it and let's all say it together. I am not strong enough. Can we say that together? I know it's gonna be hard for some of you, but, but just do me a favor, right? Do me a solid. So we're gonna say the phrase, I am not strong enough. Ready, one, two, three. I am not strong enough. Now, some of you didn't say it. So Jesus is talking to you this morning. There's so many times in my life where I would say that phrase, but I would believe something else. I'm strong enough. Oh, this situation, I got this, God. This situation, I'm competent in this. I've done this before. I've walked down this road before. I have a resume to back up that I'm strong enough in this. And you know what I've found in my life? That I'm not fighting from a place, from a position of victory when I'm saying in this verse, be strong in my gifts. Be strong in what I know. Be strong in my personality my accomplishments, the things that I have learned. No, no, no. Strength is found when I understand I'm not strong enough. So I need to be strong. I need to acquire God's strength, the Lord's strength daily in my life. I've got to look to the right person and the right person ain't you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. I see this verse in a completely different way. When Paul's like, Lord, would you remove this thorn that, that, that is in my life? He refers to it as that. We don't know what it is, but look at what the Holy Spirit says to him in response to him saying, man, I don't like this. This thing reminds me of, that I'm weak and I'm not strong. And the Holy Spirit says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Look at Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That is countercultural. You can go to Amazon right now, and not too many people are writing that with the title. How to be strong in your weaknesses. Or a better title, how to be glad in your weaknesses. No, 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 no. It's countercultural. But what does Paul say? Here's why I say that. It's my nature. But I do it so the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that I can understand 
that when I put on the Lord's strength, that's when I see his power manifested through my life. Number one, here's where we gotta start. We've gotta start with a self-awareness that says I'm not strong enough in myself, so I need to acquire the Lord's strength daily in my life. Here's the second thing, look at verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God. So he says, this is your reality So what do we do in response to that reality? We put on the whole armor of God for what purpose? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's the second thing, the second way that we fight from a position of victory. You arm yourself daily with the protection you have been given. You don't need to look for it somewhere. You already have it if you're a child of God. You've already been given it. And can I just emphasize some words here? Notice it says, put on the, starts with a W. Can you say that word with me? Put on the whole armor of God. It's not like, hey, we're going to start you out with just something small. We're going to give you a belt of truth. And then if you show yourself faithful enough, then maybe we'll give you the breastplate of righteousness. And then if you pass that test, then we'll give you the shield of faith. And and then if you pass that test, we'll give you some shoes of peace. And then if you pass that test, we'll give you the helmet of salvation. Before that, you're in trouble because your head's exposed. But nevertheless, if you continue, no, no, no. You get all of it when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to say this. I think this is obvious. These aren't actual pieces of armor. Paul's just symbolizing the things that we have been given in Jesus Christ. You get all of it. When I put my faith in Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things. Say those two words with me. All things that pertain to life and to godliness. In other words, I cannot say this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ who is struggling in whatever battle I'm facing, Lord, you've shortchanged me. If I just had a different demeanor, if I just had a different social status, if I just had a spouse, if I just had a child, if I just had one more child, if I just had this or I just had that, then I would be able to fight my battle. No, 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 no. What Paul is saying here is thank the Lord Jesus Christ that the battles that we engage with, we have been given everything. To fight from a place of victory. That's what I say it's from. Because when Jesus said it is finished and he rose three days later from the grave and he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, we were already victors. So this series, this text is about how do we apply that victory to the struggles that we experience How often do I need to put the whole armor of God on, Johnny? You may be asking that. Well, that word put on has the idea of continually. It's not like you put on a uniform, like if you ever played sports and you put on a uniform, like, okay, it's Tuesday, it's game day, I'm gonna put on this uniform and as soon as the game is over, I'm gonna put it on the rack and I'm gonna wash it and then I'll put it on maybe Friday when I have another game. No, 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 this is something that we put on every day. See, some of us approach our spiritual battles as like, man, if everything seems to be going okay in our life, then we're like, man, I don't need to open up the Bible, I don't need to talk with the Lord through prayer, I don't need 
need to really ask myself, God, what are you saying and how do I respond in obedience? Because everything seems to be going great. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to Disney World. I don't need the armor of God. If you've ever been to Disney, you know you need the armor of God if you've got kids under eight. But then we're like, you know what? I'm going into this job interview and I'm really stressed out, so for sure I'm gonna put on the armor of God and we're gonna talk the next seven weeks how to do that, so I'm gonna make sure I don't preach the entire series in one message. But okay, Lord, I need to open up my Bible. I need to talk with you. I, I'm going into this job interview and then we're like, yeah, I need to put on the whole armor of God, but, but we wanna categorize when we need it and when we don't. And the idea is, is we always need it. For what purpose? It says that you may be able to stand. To be able to stand like a lineman would protecting his quarterback on a football team, that you'd be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice we don't have to charge a hill because Jesus already's charged it. We just need to stand in the reality that we've won. We don't, it doesn't say retreat because that's not what a follower of Jesus Christ is called to do. It doesn't say I need to do something on top of what Jesus did because Jesus did it all. No, I need to stand in that reality that I am a child of God and he has accomplished victory for me. And so it's about how I apply that victory to what I'm experiencing. That's why we're in this series. We're answering that practical question. How does Jesus make a difference in my everyday life, in my everyday struggles? See, what the Lord wants from you and he wants from me is to stand, not stumble. And if there's times in my life where I am stumbling, how to move me from stumbling to standing. But what are the schemes of the devil? Let me give them to you real quick. First thing he does, and I've given this before, he deceives. Deceives us with lies, tricking us into believing that God doesn't care about us or that his promises don't apply to us. How many of us are being deceived today? Because we're thinking that. He distracts. He distracts us with worldly comforts and worry, tricking us into thinking more about our circumstances than about God who dwells within us or the spiritual warfare that surround us. Some of us are distracted right now. Like one of the things for some of us, and I put even myself in this, is these last two years from 2020 to 2022, for some of us, us being in this book and gathering together with other believers together was a habit at best. And what this last two years showed us is when our routines were totally flipped upside down, what happened is, is the veneer of habit was stripped away and we were actually faced with, whoa, How deeply rooted is my relationship with Jesus? And for some of us, we found out, holy cow, I've been distracted. I've been deceived. How about this? Discouraged. Satan discourages us, leading us to believe that nothing can change or that the bad outweighs the good in life. How many of you are there? Like, this is just the way it's always going to be. And I just got to settle for surviving rather than thriving. How about this? He divides. Because often the first three deceives, distracts, discourages, leads to division. Have you ever found in your home that when you're like saying, okay, you know, every once in a while in our house, you know, we got to do spiritual inventory. What I mean is, is, hey, you know, like, 
How's our relationship with the Lord? How's our relationship with others? Like, man, it's been a while since we've circled up and we've really spent time as a family to pray and different things like that. You know what I've found? Whenever we do that, it seems like all of a sudden, like everything is waging war to keep us from doing that. Right? Like, if you remember, like, when you were, when our kids were younger or your kids are younger and you've tried to gather the family up to do some semblance of family worship, you ever find that, like, they have no problem being completely focused watching their favorite cartoon. But all of a sudden, you're like, hey, let's pray as a family. You got kids upside down on the couch, hanging off the ledges of the chair. Like, they can't focus at all. And you're like, why are we doing this? As silly as that is, you think the enemy wants you to do that? Think the enemy wants you to put on the armor of God? John 10.10 says this, the thief, the enemy, Satan, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Like we want to jump to the next phrase, but I've come to have to give life and to give it abundantly. We want to jump to that, but that phrase only carries significance if we first understand the enemy that we're up against and what his objective is. Listen to me, mothers, the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything good in your life. He wants to do that with your kids. He wants to do that with your marriage. He wants to wreak hell and havoc in your home. When's the last time you've thought about that? That's why there's such great hope and significance when Jesus says, no, no, no. But that's not the end. That's what the enemy wants to do. But I've come to give life and I've come to give abundantly. That's why I came from heaven to earth is so that you could fight from a place of victory rather than for victory. Here's the last thing and we'll be done. Here's the third way that we fight from a place of victory, from a position of victory, from a position of strength. Number three, we gotta alert ourselves, yourself daily, that you have an enemy whose desire is to destroy you. You gotta alert yourself to that. Look at what it says in verse 12. For we do not wrestle, that word wrestle has hand-to-hand combat, just like a wrestling. How many of you wrestled in high school or college? Raise your hand. Okay, we got some of you. God bless you guys. You guys have more confidence than me. Like the uniform, once I found out what that was, I was out. (laughs) So I love you guys' confidence. Hand-to-hand combat, like it's only you and the other dude in the ring. I guess, I'm guessing they probably have, you know, female wrestling now, so it's only you and the other girl in the ring. It's, there's nobody else, there's no other teammates, there's no other, hey, I need a sub. Hand-to-hand combat, that's the word wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, all the evil that we see in the world. And we don't have time to name all of it. But you've been there. The war, the racism, the injustice, the wickedness, the crime, and you're like, I don't, even under, I don't even have a box for that stuff, some of that stuff that I see. We are naive to think that there is not demonic activity involved that is at play. And I'm not saying that there's not personal responsibility as well. But that's what Paul is getting at. And remember, he's writing to a church, to a group of people that they didn't need to be convinced that this stuff existed. 
So what is the response? He says, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. Once again, he says, whole armor. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So let me quickly answer some of these questions that I have that you should have. Well, who is our battle with? It's not with the person next to you. That's the problem. So many churches are fighting so much with each other that the, that the devil and his demons are like, man, we don't have to worry about that place. They're doing our work for us. Our battle is not with our fellow believer, fellow brother or sister in Christ. It's with the devil and his demons. Well, who is the devil? Well, he's described in 1 Peter 5 as a lion. He's described in Revelation as a dragon. In other words, we should not be underestimating the devil and his demons and being flippant about it and acting like we're strong in ourselves to go up against those. So yeah, he doesn't need to be underestimated or undervalued as far as his significance and who we're dealing with. But listen to me, sometimes we make this mistake. We want to equate the devil and God on the same level and he is not God. He's not Why do I say that? Because the devil is a created being. Isaiah 14 talks about him being a fallen angel. Colossians 1 speaks that Jesus created all things, whether they be in the heavens or whether they be on the earth. The devil is a created being. He's not eternal. He's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful. But sometimes we want to think of it that way. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know your thoughts. That's why sometimes we have to be careful what we say out loud. He doesn't know your thoughts. He's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. So some of us just need to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. I serve someone and I've been saved by someone that is stronger than the evil that I see in the world. I'm not a person that should live in defeat. But at the same time, we have to understand that the only way that we experience victory is not to rely on our own strength, but on the strength of Jesus Christ provided through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we've got to alert ourselves daily that there's an enemy who desires to destroy me. I don't know about you, but on my phone yesterday, I had two alerts that went off. And I always have my phone on silent because I hate ringers. So it vibrates at best, but I had two alerts come up, regardless of my, whether my ringer was on and off, and what were they telling me? There's a tornado warning in the area. There's also a warning that goes off on my phone and on yours as well, I'm sure, regardless of whether it's on silent or not, which is an amber alert, which I hate those because I just feel like somebody has lost, which is a reality, but I feel like, man, somebody is freaking out right now. So I always read those very carefully. But what do those alerts do? All of a sudden they wake me up that there is danger somewhere or someone is experiencing it. Some of you may relate less to that as to this. How many of you know what this is? Everyone in the room says yes. Like if you would have told me before 2020 that this Six inch wide by probably around, I don't know, four or five inch deep mask would be worn by all of us 
for almost two years, I would have said, dude, you're crazy. Or how many of you know this? The amazing thing called hand sanitizer. Notice mine is almost gone, so I use it regularly. Before 2020, like I didn't hardly ever use this stuff. Yes, I wash my hands, lest you germaphobes freak out. Yes, I wash my hands, but now when I go to the gas station, like as soon as I'm done with the pump, man, I gotta squirt up. So some of the habits that we've created aren't necessarily a bad thing, I will get that. My point is this. Before 2020, when we were exposed to a virus that exists named COVID, we would have never seen why putting on a mask would be of any benefit or using hand sanitizer would be of any benefit, but because it was on our phones all the time, because it was on our TV screen all the time, because it was on the newspaper all the time, because it was on our social media feeds all the time, that alertness made us what? Be cognizant to the reality that there's a virus out there that could kill us. Not to mention us knowing individuals who struggled with it. God forbid individuals who have died from it. All of that awareness caused us to do what? Mask up, lather up. Why? Because viruses never existed before? Because plagues never existed before? Because the flu never existed before or chickenpox never existed. Uh, no, all of a sudden, because we were being reminded of it every day, what did we do? We armed up. And sadly, because some of us have been deceived and distracted, we've armed up better against COVID than we have against the spiritual forces at play that have existed since the fall of mankind that truly do want to steal, kill, and destroy you. But that's been an afterthought at best. That's why I say if, if there's one thing that you walk out of here today with, it's that no, 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 the Lord has given me victory. I fight from that place, not for that. And I am in a spiritual battle. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we have this story of Elisha and this king of Syria. And king of Syria is waging battle against the nation of Israel and king of Syria and his army. Syria was a very powerful nation at the time. You can take that off the screen just for a second. Let me set it up. In the, and, and this nation was very powerful and the odds were stacked against Israel. And Elisha is the nation of Israel's secret weapon. Like he is their spiritual advisor. Wisdom comes from him, through him from the Lord. And so Elisha's there with his servant, and the servant's is like, what are we going to do, Elisha? Like, we're completely outnumbered. We're going to be totally vanquished today. And notice what Elisha says in verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? But look at what Elisha says. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
I know right now that the struggle seems to be overwhelming. It feels like you can't win even, even maybe for you. You feel so defeated, so discouraged, so deceived, so distracted. The enemy is attacking your passion for Jesus, your focus, your identity, your family, your relationships, your calling, whatever it may be. Do you know what the Lord wants from you? He wants you to say, would you look to me? Would you be strong in me? And in the power of my might that I want to manifest through you? Would you fight from a place of victory? Would you be willing to engage in my word over the next seven weeks so that you can see what I have given you to experience victory in your life? This is what the Lord wants from us. Would you stand with me this morning? God, we're here today. Broken people. People that have struggles. People that are hurting. People that have been disappointed. People that are anxious. People that are hurt. People that are struggling with forgiveness. People that are wondering what is these next few months going to look like? Lord, we live in a broken world. Evil is all around us. It can seem like the devil is winning and you are losing. But Lord, may we look to the cross and the empty grave and what you have given us in your word to be reminded today, but in these next weeks to come, of what we have been given through Jesus Christ. We are victorious in you. And Lord, but there is a personal responsibility to living every day in that victory. For saying, I'm going to be strong in you and not myself. For putting on every day the things that you have given us so that we can experience that victory. So God, I pray for every person and every household in this place, in this room, watching us online, that we would be committed and ready to learn how to fight over these next eight weeks. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen.